Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 31 32. We're just going to have a, a real uh, meditation on, on this verse and its implications for the topic that we'll cover this morning of forgiveness. Um, as uh, I'm sure all of you feel, I love kids. I'm sure you do too. Um, I love our three girls the Lord has given us. But kids are expensive, aren't they? And they're so expensive that God makes them expensive from the moment they enter the world. In fact, they're actually expensive before they enter the world because you have all these, you know, uh, appointments with an OB doctor. And I remember when Nat was born, I was just terrified because, you know, the whole insurance industry is just completely out of whack, isn't it? Like, where else do you go in to have some major thing done and you have no idea what it'll cost, right? And that's how it works in the insurance in the medical industry, but with Nat being born, we were kind of bracing ourselves, talking to some friends who had somewhat similar insurance policies for a couple thousand dollars of expenses. And of course, what's even more frustrating about that um, is that you don't really know until months after the thing happens. So you've completely forgotten about, you know, having uh, this kid in the hospital and all the stuff that goes with that. And then three months later, you get a random bill in the mail. And then they say, you need to pay up immediately, Right. And I remember we got one of those, uh, you know how they send ahead a letter that says like, this is your insurance estimated benefit, how the insurance credited it, but it says at the very top right, this is not a bill. You know what I'm talking about? When you go to the hospital? Well, we got one of those and it was showing the breakdown of, you know, possibly a couple thousand dollars that we were going to owe for Nat uh, being born in the hospital. And then time went by and nothing happened. And I'm like, I mean, call me crazy, but I was like, I want to figure out what our bill is and get this done and just get this off my back because I hate the weight and the pressure of bills sitting on my desk. And so I call the hospital um, trying to figure out what our bill was going to be and, you know, being prepared for them to tell me two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. And um, I remember, I still remember where I was in the, the church building where I worked when I was talking to a lady on the phone, and she says, well, let me check on that, puts me on hold for a little bit, and then come back and, and comes back and says, you don't owe us anything. Oh, well, that's strange, but I'm not stupid enough to ask any more questions. I hang up the phone immediately after they say you don't owe us anything, right? And so we go on with our life. We don't pay anything to have Nat in the hospital. And then a couple more months go, or a couple years go by, and we have Nora, and we're on the same insurance um, if I remember right. And uh, we had Nora, and she costed us $3,000. So my guess is, is that someone who's anonymous paid for our hospital bill to have our daughter, uh, which is a blessing. And I don't know about you, but that's a blessing, to have someone pay for an expense like that. But some of you have been in positions where you've been able to bless others financially. And here's what I know. As, as excited and thrilled I was that I didn't have to pay for uh, Nat, coming out in the hospital, uh, I bet that person who was given the ability to cancel our debt with the hospital loved the opportunity to bless someone, and they did so anonymously. And I think that that gives us a good illustration of forgiveness. Because forgiveness, quite literally, the word for forgive in the Bible is the same word they would use for canceling debts. And when it comes to marriage, 
you and I have to not just enjoy the process of having our debts forgiven, but we have to learn the habits and the disciplines and the joy of canceling the debts that people owe us when it comes to forgiveness. And that also means that if we are canceling a debt when it comes to forgiveness, it's not easy or uh, cheap. It's expensive and it's difficult to forgive. How many of you would, would agree with that? It's, it could be really difficult to forgive. And so this morning, I want us to discuss this discipline of forgiveness. It's very, very important. I want to read to you two verses where Jesus speaks about the very serious importance of forgiveness. Listen to these verses. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6 says that. Mark 11 says this, but if you do not forgive, neither will your father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. There are not very many things in the Bible that have that strict of a consequence attached to them. And we could get into the theology of how that, how that still pairs with eternal security and things like that, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. But here's what we need to recognize is that forgiveness is hard, but forgiveness is necessary. And before we get there, here's what I want to talk to you a little bit about. Because I think a lot of us, we don't realize that we need to forgive when we actually do need to forgive. We don't realize we're in a place, let's focus up here, I know there's distractions, we don't realize we're in a place where we need to forgive. And so what I want to lay out to you are these stages of unforgiveness. And it goes from really minor to really severe. And they're worded particularly in a way that applies to marriage. But for most of us, even if we're not currently married, these will apply to other areas of your life, whether it's with your spouse or someone else. Here's the, the first stage of unforgiveness. It's immaturity and failure. Maturity and failure. I think I've said this before. There's a good book. I just love the title. The title speaks to me. It's called, it's about marriage. It says, when sinners say I do. Because the reality is, is you're married to a sinner. And if that person's a sinner, they're going to fail you. And particularly for many of you in this room, you got married young. And uh, if you're like me, uh, getting married young, uh, you're going to deal with maybe a large amount of immaturity in your spouse. But we all act immature at times. We don't act our age, possibly. And so because you are entering marriage, maybe young, certainly naive, certainly immature, and most definitely sinful, you are going to encounter uh, your spouse doing dumb, selfish, and sinful things. You're going to encounter your spouse failing you, letting you down. And, and it may not always be in big ways, but it is going to be in ways that bother you and get at you and, and hurt you. And I, I don't know about you, but a lot of young people, when they get married, they're, they're so in love and they're so, you know, they can only see the positive things about each other. And, and maybe in some ways, that's why God created us that way so that we would commit to this lifelong relationship that makes no other sense otherwise. 
And then these, these folks who are madly in love are somehow surprised that their spouse is often selfish and maybe even occasionally stupid. And so what happens is we give way to some, what I will call, comfortable patterns. Comfortable patterns. How many of us would agree this morning that confrontation about the other person's sin is uncomfortable? Would we agree with that? Confronting someone about their sin, about how they've hurt you even, it's uncomfortable. It could be uncomfortable for a variety of reasons, right? It could be uncomfortable because um, we don't want to sound too sensitive, you know, and, and come across as the weak person. Maybe how I would struggle with that. Uh, it can be uncomfortable because we're afraid of how they'll respond, right? Um, are they going to receive this? Are they going to defend themselves? But though I feel really sure that this hurt me and that I need to talk to them about it, confronting someone about their sin and how they hurt you can be very uncomfortable, right? And so because that is uncomfortable, and also we talked about last week how uh, confessing your sin proactively can also be uncomfortable. Because here's the reality. There's a good amount of times in marriage when you offend your spouse that you know you did. You're kind of waiting for them to bring it up because you're like, well, I hope I kind of get away with that one even though I feel really guilty about it. And so because those things are uncomfortable, here's what happens. We fall into more comfortable patterns. Things that are easier, right? It's a lot easier to give way to accusation and judgment and punishment rather than honest and loving confrontation. It's a lot easier, I think many, many spouses do this, by pouting, by kind of crossing their arms and walking around hoping their spouse takes all the clues that they're mad, by rehearsing the wrongs that are done to us in our mind over and over again, Um, compiling a list in our mind, of all the things they've done, yelling and anger. Uh, By the way, it's actually a lot easier to yell at someone and blow up than it is to confront in a way that is graceful and biblical. Would we agree with that? For some of you, maybe you're not that type of person who blows up in that way. You'd rather stew and simmer on it. But there's a good chunk of people in the world that it's a lot easier for them to blow up and, and, you know, bang doors and, you know, slam doors and set things down real hard so that the other person knows because it's a lot harder to exercise what the Bible calls temperance in addressing your hurts and your wrongs, right? So we fall into these comfortable patterns and and I just want to give a word of caution to those who've been married a long time. I I don't know whether this is particularly true of the marriages in here because I'm not in your home, but I I would really warn you against justifying your lack of confrontation because you've managed to make it work for 10, 20 years. That doesn't mean it's right. And that also doesn't mean that it's helping your marriage. Though you've not been divorced, good for you, that doesn't mean that your way of approaching sin is actually good. Um, and I, I think if, if you were to sit down and we were to dig into it, you'd probably see that for yourself. The next way that, that we fall into this pattern of unforgiveness is what, I, what an author, Paul Tripp, called establishing defenses. So this is when we kind of gear up and we, we kind of, in our mind, 
um, build ways internally to defend ourselves from the actions of the other person. And, and often how this expresses itself is a self-righteous attitude. Now listen really closely. What do I mean by self-righteous attitude? Because a lot of us, we don't like that term. We want to shy away from that. We don't want to stick that label on ourselves. Here's a self-righteous attitude. You may be convinced this morning your spouse is the bigger issue in your marriage, but I want you to listen to this sentence. A self-righteous attitude is when you convince yourself that you're not the problem. So you've compiled a list as to how this other person has really uh, contributed the predominant amount of dysfunction to your marriage. Um, And I just want to warn you that, number one, that's not probably largely helpful to your marriage in any way, shape, or form. Um, We can't control another person's addressing their sin. We can't control that. But what we can do is we can control how we address our own sin, okay? Sometimes this establishing defense is we take an offensive approach. You know, there's that old saying, the best defense is a good offense, right? And so we will defend um, our imperfections often by reminding our spouse of their imperfections. And here's why this gets, this is actually a very serious crossroads in your marriage. Because it's at this stage, even if it's just internal and it's not fleshed itself out in a, a verbal battle, listen very closely. This is a problem because it's at this juncture, you and your spouse stop standing together to fight problems and start aligning yourselves against each other. That is bad. And it's the same thing for every other relationship. We, uh, we, we know that we wrestle not, what does the Bible say, against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And so if you're setting up your spouse as the alternate side of the battle, this is an issue. This is an issue. And it's no wonder that this leads to the next phase of nurturing dislike. And boy, does this speak to other areas of life as well. This is where we start meditating on what is wrong with the other person more so than celebrating the good that is in their life. We nurture dislike. Now, no spouse is perfect, um, myself included, obviously. But I want you to ask yourself this question, if you found yourself meditating on this. What good is it to reflect on the imperfections of my spouse if we aren't addressing them in a biblical way? What good does it do for you to stew on how they failed you and hurt you if you don't have the guts to confront it? It does no good. And and this can happen very slowly and on a very small decline and then accelerate much more over the years of a marriage. You know, I know that it's because a lot of marital counseling that I've done and my friends have done, we're dealing with things that are five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old. And, and if restoration hasn't taken place, forgiveness hasn't taken place, there's no, uh, th- that's obvious as to why we're bringing up things that are that old because someone has been meditating on that for a very long time. I've even seen 
marriages who are plagued by the hurts that were caused even before they got married. And they weren't dealt with. And so this could be really serious. And this is why I want to encourage all of you who are married in here. I want you to ask yourself this question. How often do you reflect on your spouse's good traits versus their bad? If you find yourself meditating on the bad, that's your cue. You need to talk about it. Okay? So there is a place in the Bible for overlooking an offense in love. Right? There's little ways that I'm selfish or not considerate of my wife every day. I, I, my wife literally said this to me this week. She said, Mike, if I kept a record of all the things you've done, I would go crazy. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of little things in which I don't consider my wife as I should. And there's, there's little things. But here's, here's how you know when you need to talk about it. If they start stacking up and they start getting into your thought life, and you may say, well, it's little, I should just push it away. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But, but you're not called by God to just push something away that's interrupting your psyche, okay? God made you that way for a reason. I think he gives us that prompt by his grace so that we can discuss something that is causing a nurturing dislike in our marriage. And listen, you need to, you need to talk about these things because it is a bad road to start down if you're, if you're nurturing uh, frustration and dislike of your spouse. That's not a good road you want to go down. That is your prompt if your kids, your grandkids, hear negative things out of your mouth about your spouse, that's your cue. You've gone, to, you've gone down that path. That's your cue. You need to be talking. Because if you don't say stuff like that to people unless it's been up here for a while. Okay? So there's, there's no reason to be blurting out negative things about someone else um, you know, when you could just be talking to the person who's involved, right? And so this nurture dislike, and then I want, I, want to, I want to ask you this, okay? I asked you this question, every spouse in here. How often do you think about the good versus the bad? Now, here's the second question. How often do you express the good? How often do you express the good? Uh, um, my pastor in, in liberal, uh, Tyler, he said, he said this, and this is a really good rule for life. All of you should write this down because I, th- I think... It, um, a good amount of you are not maybe as verbally appreciative in probably every area of your life as you could be because we're all very quiet people in this room. If you think something good in your head, say it to that person within two minutes. This is a good rule for life. If you think something good in your head about somebody, say it within two minutes. Now, some of us, we have this really stupid excuse for that. Oh, I, don't want to make, I don't want them to have too big of an ego. I don't want them to get too big on themselves, high and mighty, like they're so awesome. What if I tell them too many good things and they actually think they're amazing? Can I just help you? Let God handle the pride of other people and you steward your responsibility to encourage and affirm. It's God's job to humble people, not yours, okay? And so if you think something good, say it within two minutes. This is a really great rule for your spouse. Some of you dudes, you eat a really stinking good meal prepared by your spouse and you don't say a word. Say something for goodness sakes. You think your wife looks nice. Say something. My soul, that would help your marriage a lot. You think a lot of good things up here, right? It's almost like that old adage, like the guy who said, hey, I told you I loved you at our wedding and I'll tell you when that changes, right? 
I told you your, your, that meal was good the very first time you made it, and I'll tell you when it changed. No, no, no. Every time something good comes in your mind, say it to them. This is how we counter against this nurturing dislike thing. And this will help you in every area of your life as well. If you think something good, say it. When this nurturing dislike happens, here's the problem. We start interpreting every action through a negative filter right? It's like we're wearing sunglasses, right? What do sunglasses do? They make everything look darker, right? Things that are bright are darker. Well, that's a good thing for sunglasses, but if we put negativity lenses on our eyes, we start seeing things that are neutral or even uh, bright that our spouse does, and we find a way to interpret them negatively, right? And, And so that's why it's so good for you to Uh, counter against this by affirming and encouraging, right? Um, When we have a negative perception of someone, we start thinking, well, they must have directed that at me. They must be doing that because they're mad at me. They must be doing that to get back at me. They must have said that to hurt me. That's how you know you're a nurturing dislike. Here's the next phase. Becoming overwhelmed. Becoming overwhelmed. This is where we start saying, I don't know how to fix this. And listen, this doesn't happen immediately. There's very few problems in marriage. There are some serious problems that happen that we're like, oh no, I don't know how to fix this. Normally, normally, other than some extreme cases, this is built up over time, okay? It's like adding layers and layers of bricks that you have to, it's, it's one thing to break through one brick wall, but if you've built 12 of them in a row, then it's kind of easy to get overwhelmed and realize, I don't know how to break through that. I don't know how to uncover and, and, and dig up all these bad habits that we've had for two or five or 10 or 20 years in our marriage, right? Um, this is when you start realizing that you may be living with somebody that you don't actually like that much most of the time. That you start feeling like this, Um, You start justifying yourself and you're constantly um, battling, which can be super exhausting. I mean, my soul, every every tension-filled moment in marriage is exhausting emotionally, isn't it? And, And when you start having that day after day, week after week, that can make even the best intentioned people really overwhelmed. When you feel like as a husband or as a wife that you're walking on eggshells, That's what this is. That's overwhelmed. I feel like I can't even operate without being, without my spouse blowing up on me or walking away and pouting, right? And we become overwhelmed. And so here's what happens. Here's what happens. Typically, I'm not saying this is always the case, um, the spouse will begin to occupy their free time, not by investing in their marriage or the kids, but investing in their career or their hobbies, Sometimes I've seen, uh, particularly with women, that they become really focused on the kids, their, their A-plus mom, but their D-minus spouse. Well, I've, I've literally seen this in, in marriages where you've got super mom who's fundraising and doing all these things for her kids' sports, but her and her husband sleep in a separate room because they hate each other. 
Now, some spouses sleep in a separate room because one's a terrible snorer. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying that, that when you have those type of issues, here's what you're doing. You're so overwhelmed that instead of talking to somebody, you go out and hunt all the time. You go out and fix stuff all the time. You're, you're hanging out with your kids all the time, so you don't have to deal with the person who actually you share a life with, right? This is this overwhelmed stage. This is the stage when a lot of people say, um, Pastor Mike, we can't get back to where you're talking about. We can't get better. We can't get better. And I want you to recognize what, what you are saying when you say that. Okay? When you say, Pastor Mike, there's no way we could, we could dig up all this and get back. Number one, you're saying you're omniscient. You know more than God. Because if God calls you a certain lifestyle, you're saying, I know better than him, and, and, and I know that we can't get there. And you're also saying that your problem is too big for a God who raised somebody from the dead. That's an absurd statement, right? Now, it may be challenging, and it may feel overwhelming, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, doubting that at all, but we have to recognize that this is a dangerous, really dangerous spot because it very often, almost always, leads to this next one. And it's envying other couples. Envying other couples, right? And, and it seems like this, that, that you think in your mind that it would be a whole lot easier to escape your marriage than to fix it. Now, I'm not sure if anyone's here, but I want to warn you that, th- that this is more of a present possibility than you might think when you start going down this road. You start thinking it'd be a lot easier to escape my marriage than to fix it. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Mike, I would never cheat on my spouse. I would never, I, I don't believe divorce is biblical. You might even say things like that. But can I warn you that internally wishing you could escape from your marriage but not doing it outwardly is not something to pat yourself on the back about? Because Jesus gave us some pretty serious warnings about internal um, lust and discontentment, didn't he? He speaks of sexual lust, and it's coincidentally right before passage on divorce when Jesus says this, Whoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Okay? So if, if, if you only internally fantasize escape from your God-given marriage, don't, don't think that that's okay, and don't think that you're exempt from acting out on that. So these are the stages of forgiveness. I want you to identify where you might fall. For some of you, it's stage one, right? We all at least fall on stage one, immaturity and failure, because we all deal with that. Some of you, it's, it's, you're falling into the comfortable patterns. There's things that keep coming up in your mind and your heart that are bothering you that need to be addressed in your marriage, and I'm sure your spouse has some for you, by the way. For some of you, you've established defenses. You're justifying yourself. You're nurturing dislike. You're becoming overwhelmed. I want you to peg where you're at, and then I want to teach you for just a few moments on what forgiveness is, and what forgiveness is not, okay? What is forgiveness? First of all, forgiveness is not pretending that things are okay when they're not. That is not forgiveness. That is not honorable. That is not praiseworthy to pretend things are okay when they're not. Nowhere, I call it this, this is the attitude. It's the grin and bear it attitude. The grin and bear it attitude. And I'm not trying to be unkind uh, to those of you who come from a different generation than I am. I'm just observing something, and you have a lot of observations you can make about my generation and its faults. I will say this, that, that 
that one of the praiseworthy things of a former generation of wives in particular is their, their more than willingness to, to obey the Bible's commands to submit and things like that because it was more culturally a thing. Now it's super challenging and, and our culture says everything against that. And so what has been produced from that is women who live in, in very uh, tension-filled homes that grin and bear it. They pretend it's okay. And that's true in every home. That's not just a generational thing, but I have seen that to be more true in the, in the marriages of people who are my parents' age And I just want to help you this morning. It is not spiritually helpful to you or to your spouse to act like things are okay when they're not. That doesn't help anyone. Because first of all, that cheats your spouse out of an opportunity for spiritual growth. I have had a lot of spiritual growth because my wife has cared about me enough to confront the selfishness in my heart. So her holding that back because she was uh, too shy or too unwilling to deal with that is cheating me out of spiritual growth, right? And I want you to not give yourself, because a lot of people, they say, well, I'm doing this because I love them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And I want, I want you to not give yourself a pass for just a minute. Because I'm convinced that the majority of people, the reason they don't confront, or the reason they pretend things are okay, is not because they love the other person as much as they love themselves and they don't want the hassle of confrontation. Because they know, some marriages, they bring it up, all hell breaks loose. What do you mean? Well, let me tell you about you. Well, no wonder your husband or your wife doesn't talk to you about things. Because you act like that. You act like a petulant child, right? Maybe it could be that you are more self-interested and not dealing with sin because you'd rather ignore it than get into the weeds and have a long discussion because you're so worn out by talking to your spouse about problems. Oh, Pastor Mike, I just can't handle a conversation. Do you detect the sarcasm? Because men say this all the time. I don't feel sorry for you, men. When you say, I'm not willing to talk about, oh, it's so exhausting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, righteous things take hard work. And don't be lazy. You've got to uh, address things when they're not okay. Here's that next thing. Forgiveness is not getting something out of your system. So here's what I mean by that. Some people say, well, I- I've gotten out of my system because I don't, feel, I don't feel hurt about it anymore. But instead of getting it out of your system by talking to somebody and restoring the relationship, you've taken the anger and the frustration that is God-given when you're hurt. And you, instead of uh, outletting that in a confrontation a discussion with your spouse, you've outletted that on other things, right? So here's how we, we, we take this ball of energy that's caused by our hurt and we throw it at our kids. Your kids know when you and your spouse are not doing well because you take it out on them. Your kids know when you're not happy because you take it out on them. Sometimes we, we throw it at our spouse, And so instead of positively dealing and and working together to deal with this issue, we take all this anger and frustration, we throw it at them, or we take it out on physical objects, right? Some people do that. Sometimes we take it out by ranting to a friend. And this is why I told you earlier, if you're negatively expressing energy to somebody else, you're expressing it to Facebook, you're expressing it to your bestie, you're expressing it to your kid, who's adult or kid, it's still wrong, even if they're an adult. And you're taking those negative thoughts and you're throwing them here and there. That's your cue that you should be positively dealing with that with your spouse privately, right? It's good for us to remember Jesus's words and his counsel in Matthew 18. If any man offends you, go between 
you and him alone. Go between you and him alone. Okay? Here's the next one. This is where we get in Ephesians 4. Forgiveness is a vertical commitment to God. Now look at Ephesians 4, verse 31. Actually, uh, look at verse 32. We'll get to verse 31 here in a minute. It says, and be ye, what's the next word? Kind. Let's all look at it. And be kind to one another, tender hearted. Wow, some of us need that after we've been hurt. It's hard to stay tender hearted when you're hurt. Forgiving one another. Here's the motivation for forgiveness. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What, what Paul is pointing out in verse 32 is that, that forgiveness is a vertical commitment. That forgiveness begins with the rec- recognition that you've been forgiven by God. And therefore, listen, the vertical forgiveness God has bestowed upon you indebts you to extend that forgiveness to others, right? That's where the parable of the unforgiving servant comes in. The guy who had an innumerable debt against him, he was forgiven it. And then Jesus tells the story how he went out to another guy. He grabs him by the throat and says, you need to pay me my $500 or I'm going to kill you or throw you in prison. What was Jesus telling the story there? That because God through Christ has channeled vertical forgiveness to you, you have a vertical responsibility to God to forgive them. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. This is a gospel issue, Right? This is why this doesn't just apply to marriage. This applies to every other area of life. And so because Jesus, God for Jesus' sake, has canceled your debt. Listen, because Jesus canceled your debts, you are obligated to him to cancel your debts with others. What do I mean by debts? It's that relational leverage that we have when someone hurts us. Ah, Now I can leverage this in our next argument. Ah, now I can leverage this against uh, them with our kids or with this other person. We are canceling that debt, which means we no longer have leverage. We don't have a lien against their title. We aren't treating them as though they owe us for what they did. I'm gonna say that again. You aren't treating them as if they owe you for what they did, right? And then verse 31 shows us that forgiveness is also horizontal, okay? So we have an obligation to Christ to forgive. We also have a horizontal obligation to forgive. We call this restoration, but the Bible views this as one. Now, I'm, I'm running out of time, but here's what I'll say. That this shows up in the, ver- in the horizontal things. Look at verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice, right? Here's how I would, I would uh, update those in kind of the way we talk today. Bitterness, wrath, shouting, slander, and a mean-spirited nature. If those are showing up horizontally, you have some forgiveness to be doing. Mean-spirited nature. Oh, I've been there, right? Now listen. Listen, you can forgive somebody and release them from the debt without them apologizing. But, but hear me well. Listen, all eyes up here, please. You cannot be restored with somebody who has not asked you to be restored. And that's why some of you need to talk to your spouse. Because you can't actually experience restoration by just dealing with this internally. You have to experience restoration by talking to them about it 
and them wanting to be restored. You can forgive them, okay? So there's no excuse for bitterness or resentment. But you can't be properly restored unless something is dealt with both of you together. And here's what happens. We pile up distance. So because there's a fault here that we haven't restored and we don't deal with it, then we add another one. More distance. Are you seeing it? Sorry. And then more. Because we're not talking, I've forgiven. Well, yeah, you've forgiven. And praise God if you don't hold any bitterness and resentment. But if you've not talked about it, you haven't been restored to them. Right? And what happens when we keep going? Not good things. Not good things. Here's the last thing, and I'm way over time. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's a process. It's a process. It's a process. You're going to have those feelings resurface, and you have to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ over and over and over again. It's a process. Trust God in the process. Ask for his grace in the process. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive also our debtors. Okay? That is the lesson for today. I hope you'll look over those discussion questions. Man, marriages could be healed if we work on this. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus has forgiven us. That is our great motivator when it comes to forgiveness. I pray you'd help us to extend this forgiveness to those who've hurt us as well. In Jesus' name.